Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my ongoing series on gender, sexuality, and transition. Today's guest is Dr. William Malone, who is an endocrinologist. Endocrinologist. Not to be confused with a rabid hater of Star Wars' third episode, or sixth episode, Indoor Cringeologist. Anyways, here's William Malone. How's your day going so far? Yeah, not too bad. Um... You know, the, this this whole topic is a difficult one, um, and I think I think a lot of physicians have some uh, significant frustration at how, in particular, our medical societies have handled this topic, uh, especially in the U.S. And um, I think that's caused quite a bit of frustration. So I think, I think, uh, you know, most, most doctors are usually baseline stressed. Uh, physician burnout is, I think at all time highs. Um, but you know, this topic in particular is, uh, obviously is, um, is a stressful one in and of itself. So, uh, but the day's going pretty good. How's your day going? Oh, it's pretty good. I mean, uh, I was just going through the report that you sent me on this and, uh, you know, yeah. just crank, cranking into livelihood. Um, but yeah. you, you brought up that it seems like a vicious circle that this topic, which would be, I guess, transsexualism or transgenderism, yeah. right. uh, it, it introduces stress to caregivers, uh, medical doctors and uh, therapists, which Patient. causes them to let alone the patients, but it causes the professionals to avoid it, leading to less uh, quality of care for the patients. Um, and then the people who step in to give the care usually end up being, would you say, affirmative or only going in one yeah. direction? Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's a great, great point. And that's that's exactly what's happening. So if, if docs don't have an understanding of the topic, they will essentially just steer clear of it. And um, they'll direct a patient who is uh, requesting puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to a so-called gender expert who may or may not be an expert. Hmm. Uh, they may just be willing to prescribe cross-sex hormones. Uh, and, uh, and so that doc who has little understanding or may be extremely skeptical of gender affirmation therapy uh, will refer to a doctor who will quote unquote give the patient what they want and uh and that that obviously yes it has led to the current situation where most docs are not speaking up because uh, they don't feel like they have i think the medical knowledge to do so in a competent fashion because um you know this 
So historically, um, you know, the number of people who would go on to cross-sex hormones and uh, uh, I'll call it feminizing or masculinizing surgery was very small. It was maybe one out of 20,000 in the general population, one out of 40,000. Um, and, you know, it was basically considered a, um, an orphan disease what or condition. Meaning it's very rare that you, you, okay. you'll hardly see it and hardly anyone is specialized in it. Uh, but with the introduction of puberty blockade in particular, uh, and then the new phenomenon of adolescent onset gender dysphoria. So I'll call it adolescent or young adult onset gender dysphoria. Um, essentially, this has exploded into um, mainstream medicine now, and most doctors are completely unprepared to deal with it. Um, in the UK, it's a little bit different now. So uh, Carl Hennigan has come out, and he's the editor-in-chief of the uh, British Medical Journal. Uh, he came out earlier this year and essentially stated the truth, which is gender affirmation therapy uh, is unproven to work and uh, has the risk of significant, serious, and irreversible side effects. Uh, and he essentially stated that it is unproven and unsafe uh, to be applied to children and adolescents. And then recently, the Royal College of General Practitioners, uh, that's a group of 50,000 uh, general practitioners in England, uh, in the UK, uh, came out recently with a statement essentially stating the same thing, which is the truth, which is this, this approach to treating folks with gender dysphoria uh, this this gender affirmation therapy, and in particular, and then the application of the medical arm of the Dutch protocol, which is puberty blockade at Tanner stage two, early puberty, uh, followed by cross-sex hormones, and then potentially sex reassignment surgery. Uh, so, so that is completely unproven in children and adolescents, unstudied, unproven, very dangerous, given the side effects of these hormones. And in addition, the application of that protocol to, uh, because most gender dysphoria resolves. So most kids- By age gender 20, dysphoria. you say. Yeah, as, 80%. as that's what the literature says. So regardless of source, you know, th this, is, this has been well-established back to probably 1995. And again, we're talking, so right now, about childhood gender dysphoria. So 80 to 90% of kids who have gender dysphoria will have resolution of that uh, as they pass through puberty. Um, that's not been well studied. We don't know the process by which that occurs, but we do know uh, through puberty, the majority will resolve. So if you apply a protocol of puberty blockade, so affirmation, puberty blockade, and cross-sex hormones, to every kid who's coming into puberty, you essentially are going to treat many who would have resolution of their gender dysphoria. And that's another major obvious problem. Well, what are the, the basic uh, effects of the puberty blocker and then going on cross-sex hormones? You, you said that that was dangerous or they can be dangerous. What are some of the yeah. effects of that? 
Yeah, so so puberty blockade, essentially, the idea is that if you have a gender dysphoric kid, you give them puberty blockers. It will buy that kid some time to um, figure out if they want to be treated with cross-sex hormones. But puberty blockade, and this has been uh, written about fairly extensively in the literature, especially the international literature, um, essentially halts the development of that adolescent on multiple levels. So physiologically, uh, socially, um, perhaps intellectually, we don't know. So essentially you're halting a natural process um, of development. And so after two years of puberty blockade, so let's say you start a, a kid at age 14 on a puberty blockade. Two years later, you're essentially still dealing with a 14-year-old. Huh. Socially, uh, the, all of their peers have advanced. Uh, they're having more complex interactions. They're going through puberty. They're having all of the, th have, they're experiencing all of the things that occur during puberty. And that process seems to resolve most gender dysphoria. Hmm. And so you're halting one criticism here, and this is not just my criticism. This is the, this is what's written in the literature. One concern and criticism of this approach is that you are, you are halting the process that actually leads to resolution of the dysphoria. Now, um, we there are a couple, well, there's one major study of about 70 kids who showed, and what that shows is that all those kids who were put on puberty blockers went on to cross-sex hormones. So puberty blockers are sold as a way to decide. Huh. But if you are halting a child's development, how are they supposed to decide? Uh, and so all of the kids in that study went on to cross-sex hormones. And um, hmm. that combination of puberty blockade followed by cross-sex hormone has a high likelihood of causing infertility. Okay. All right. So that's one major issue here. If you, if you initiate puberty blockade early in puberty, and then follow that with cross-sex hormones. You've essentially induced this state of permanent infertility. Does that, not just fertility, but but sexual gratification, like the sexual development, the ability to have enjoyable yeah. uh, sexual yeah. contact is diminished? Yeah, yeah that's another, another concern, right? Because you have essentially immature genitalia. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are significant risks of cross-sex hormones. So, 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 you know, a, a girl who is given testosterone, so let's say, you know, puberty blockade is initiated at age 14 or 13, and then cross-sex hormones initiated at 15 or 16. Um, so within three to six months, uh, her voice will deepen permanently and not turn. Um, she'll experience some changes in facial structure. So her jaw will increase in size, her, her brow might change, her face will begin to appear more masculine. Uh, there are changes in skin and hair, obviously, so testosterone tends to cause body hair growth and 
uh, reductions in scalp hair growth. Um, there are reports, and again, we don't we don't fully understand what happens here. And this is why Carl Hennigan has stated very clearly, he said, you know, this process of puberty blockade and cross-sex hormones is being used, and this is his words, in a state of profound scientific ignorance. So, so we don't really, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We have some experience from women who have developed uh, testosterone secreting tumors. Hmm. Um, so if a woman comes into Naturally. an endocrine, yes. So, okay. so endocrinologists are supposed to identify excesses or insufficiencies of hormones okay. and then put those back into normal ranges. That's our that's our primary goal. That's our primary training. So, if somebody's uh, insulin levels are too low, their blood sugar will be too high. They will have diabetes. We do things to get their insulin levels back to normal ranges. So, if if a woman comes in with um, excess testosterone, th this is this is a significant in normal situations. This is of significant concern. I mean, we, we start a workup, we are, we're doing a ton of blood work, we're doing imaging, we're trying to find this tumor that's making testosterone because it's going to permanently alter her physical appearance mm -hmm. and massively increase her risk of heart disease. Okay. And, and what so does that, it do to the female genitalia? So it'll cause vaginal atrophy, and that can lead to incontinence. Uh, okay. um, so... And that, that's a significant side effect. Okay. So the you know the vaginal tissue essentially is dependent upon estrogen for its okay. for normal function and um, sustainability. Uh, so so there are immediate physical changes, uh, and then really long term um, a profound increased risk in the chance of a heart attack. And we do have studies showing that. So, so a woman taking testosterone has four times the odds of developing a heart attack than a woman who is not. And, and is that because the way in which the female, uh, I guess, the female grown heart interacts with a, a new uh, induction of uh, testosterone? Or is that, does it bring it in line? Does it bring these women in line with the male rates of heart disease? It's twice the risk of the male rate. Okay. So it's four, so so I want to be careful with the statistical terms here. So so the correct term, the way the study was done, it was odds. So it was four times the odds of a woman's risk of heart disease, and two times the odds of a man's risk. So it's higher than both. So a woman taking testosterone basically uh, has a higher risk than than both categories. Uh, that probably has to do with a multitude of factors. So. Right. Every single cell of our body that has a nucleus has either an XX or an XY chromosome in it. And uh, each cell behaves according to its complement of sex chromosomes, independently of hormones. So it's not like we're all made up of um, ambivalent cells <laughs> who will respond simply according to the bath of hormone that you put them in. There are sex specific differences. This is well known in biology, not well known by some people in gender clinics. I found out, <laughs> uh, they think that, well, if you just put 
uh, a woman's testosterone level into the male physiologic range that her body will just act as if she's male. So her risk will just go to male levels, but that's not true. Uh, in addition, the way that our um, DNA expresses itself is also sex dependent in terms of what genes are turned on and turned off. So, so there's a there's a host of biological differences that some of them are poorly understood, but certainly that the, the in, it, it should be no surprise that if you take a male hormone and put it into female physiology at excess levels, that bad things are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then the reverse is true as well. So, so a man who takes estrogen after about five years or so, um, his risk of developing blood clots and strokes is he'll develop. So, so men taking estrogen will develop blood clots and strokes at two to three times the rate of men not taking estrogen and women. So a significant increased risk of stroke and blood clot. Uh, we know this just from women who take birth control. That is the main, main issue with oral contraceptives is, is uh, blood clot. Uh, so, so these side effects should shock no one. I mean, this, this is basic, at least for an endocrinologist, this is basic yeah. hormones and biology. So you guys, endocrinology is being retrofitted to become, instead of something that aligns the body with its natural state, to, to like a kind of a mad scientist, we are now employed to change the body's natural state. We're now meddling with nature rather than to bring a body back into alignment. Yeah, but only in this one particular condition. And that's why there's this cognitive dissonance. It's really, it's really bizarre. So Only for other... gender dysphoria. Correct. So in every other aspect of medicine, if the, if the mind and the body are misaligned, so if, if the mind is, is uh, at odds with material reality, biological reality or some other reality, we do everything we can to get that individual back to foundational reality. But in this situation, we're essentially changing the body to match the brain. But, but that paradigm is completely reversed, in, as it should be, in every other aspect of medicine. And that's why it makes no sense, because it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's at odds with how we practice medicine in any, in any other aspect. Hmm. Um, and, and that's why some have called this kind of a crisis of you know, psychiatry, for example, because if this principle holds that if the brain and the body are at, if the brain is at odds with reality, but we reinforce the non-reality, you know, there's, there's no field of psychiatry left. We just alter the body to suit the subjective whims of the mind. Yes. Which is good business if you're into body modification, plastic surgery, and uh, handing out hormones. Uh, yes. To be completely cynical. Uh, and yeah. I mean that as a joke, but I don't think I, there's so I, much joking going on. Well, no, I mean, I th yes, I think um, there's certainly, unfortunately, uh, some, some of that going on. I mean, I think, um, yeah. And in the United States, so in Britain, doctors are standing up and coming out and making 
very firm statements. What is happening in the United States? In the United States, the main medical organizations have endorsed affirmation therapy. Okay. And um, this was before the wave of adolescent onset gender dysphoria. Otherwise, so this no is mostly for adults. No, that, so recently. so they they endorsed affirmation therapy for childhood onset gender dysphoria. Okay. By the way, the Dutch National Clinic does not promote doesn't use affirmation therapy. At least they don't describe that in the literature. And you bring up the Dutch uh, clinic because they're the ones who made the first researches that are the research that is now the foundation for affirmation. Yes. Yes. So their their medical protocol, at least. Okay, the puberty blockade followed by cross-sex hormones, but they don't they don't use affirmation. That, uh, so they use there are three different counseling models, essentially or approaches to gender dysphoria, and I fault the medical societies for not educating physicians about this. So affirmation is only one. So you have there's a therapeutic, there's an accommodative, and then affirmation. The Dutch do not use affirmation because they understand that affirming a young child's gender confusion or sex confusion, right? To be more accurate, I would say it's a sex confusion, um, reduces the likelihood that that kid's gender dysphoria will resolve. On its own. Yeah. So they use what's called a modified therapeutic model where they essentially focus on exploring developmental factors that could have led to this state of gender dysphoria, which the term gender dysphoria as well is, is bizarre. But anyway, so um, because no one comes in and complains of their gender, usually, you know, they complain of their characteristic features. So I don't like my secondary sexual characteristics. I don't like breast development. I don't like it's, it's not, I don't like that. I, like football more than field hockey. Yeah. <laughs> to use a stereotypical gender. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but until this, uh, the spate of ROGD, uh, rapid onset um, or adolescent onset, which now, uh, which I think, I'm speculating here, but it seems in the cases that I've seen and the people that I've spoken to, they spend a lot of time online and they get this idea in their head that their gender wholesale is wrong yeah rather than aspects yeah um i think that might be accurate so we can touch on that i want to go back to the um if you don't mind to the three counseling models just so just to finish that point off in case some people are interested so so the dutch don't use affirmation because it prevents resolution of gender dysphoria they use a modified therapeutic technique it's called uh ken zucker was using a therapeutic model which is one of the reasons that they came after him because he was essentially trying to help kids resolve their gender dysphoria so they would not have to go through cross-sex hormones and sex reassignment surgery because the long-term studies show that in terms of psychological functioning, it it doesn't help. It doesn't work. You know, suicidality has actually increased. Hmm. Uh, There was a Scandinavian study showing that folks who had undergone sex reassignment surgery had a 20-fold increased risk of completing suicide long-term than those who had not versus baseline, which is part of the motivation for 
inducing uh, or introducing puberty blockade to the whole treatment protocol. Because one of the thoughts was, oh, maybe the reason these folks are not doing well long-term is because they went through puberty, and so they look like they're real sex, and so they're not able to present themselves as the opposite sex, and so if we can block their puberty, they'll do better long-term. Completely unproven. No long-term data to show that that works. And in addition, because most gender dysphoria resolves, that approach is catching many, many kids inappropriately. So, uh, so Zucker was using a therapeutic model, um, and the Dutch use a modified therapeutic. Accommodative is essentially you don't take one view or the other. You don't affirm, but you, don't, you also don't try to resolve. You're essentially hands-off. Um, so there are three different models. In the United States, we have combined affirmation therapy with the Dutch medical protocol, so, which essentially is ensuring, which is the puberty blockade, which is essentially ensuring that the maximum number of Gender dysphoric kids are going to be caught up into medicalization. And so that's another criticism. I'm not sure how we got down that road exactly, but... Um, and and uh, medicalization is a lifelong path. Unless, unless you, you desist. So, yeah. So desistance is uh, essentially resolution of gender dysphoria. Um, and then detransition would be after you've been medicalized... Uh, stopping cross-sex hormones, attempting reversal surgery if possible, um, uh, etc. So yes, if you go down that pathway uh, and, and it's a long-term pathway for you, uh, yes, you are dependent upon uh, medication. You're in a sense a, a ward of the medical establishment. Then. You are, um, you're a permanent medical patient, yes, mm -hmm. yes. You know, within, so testosterone injections, for example, they last about two to three weeks. So uh, if, if you're, you're essentially, you're test, if you're a woman taking testosterone, your testosterone levels will go to zero after about three weeks without an injection. So you're completely dependent upon hormones to maintain the, the state that, uh, the hormonal state that you're in. I should add one more thing too. So, so I believe, you know, the Dutch, um, so this, this pathway of medicalization is known to be risky. I don't think this is necessarily a surprise. Um, but the approach to medicine is a little bit different in Europe than it is here. So in Europe, the approach almost is that you can decide to do something that is not good for you if you wish. You see that a little bit with assisted suicide, for example. So, okay, I have depression and I've tried everything and, and, and so I'd like a doctor to um, basically kill me with medication. Um, so, so that has been the approach as well. And you see that in the international literature where, okay, we know that cross-sex hormones and sex reassignment surgery are dangerous in and of themselves and probably don't, uh, improve long-term psychological functioning and may in fact worsen it. But because this individual wants to choose that road, we're going to facilitate that. So it's, it's one of kind of personal choice. It's quote unquote a right to access something that is harmful. In the United States, we, we haven't really adopted that approach so much. So I, I think anybody looking at the literature 
and anyone with any experience prescribing these hormones knows without a doubt that this is a dangerous path. Um, and even, I would say, affirmation, uh, supportive practitioners, if, if you really pin them down, will admit so. But they will default to, well, it's the patient's right to decide how they want to be treated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's really two parallel um, arguments going on. One is a medical one, and one is, you know, is it a right to decide in it? There are people on both sides. It is a is it a right to access a treatment that is harmful to you? Mm-hmm. I guess, uh, and there's a cost benefit analysis that people run through. But with the uh, oh. with the political situation um, and the push towards affirmative uh, therapy or the affirm the affirmative model from outside the medical establishment, um, that can guide the patient towards doubling down and very much insisting that the risks uh, or the benefits outweigh the risks. Yeah, I think that's an accurate statement. And do you feel in America there is not only are the professionals undereducated with this, but they're also under pressure to not speak out about this or to just go along? Is there, do you feel that there's pressure or, or that there's, there's risk for, for people professionally to stand up and to push back against the affirmative model? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes, I think is the answer to both of those. I think um, um, so I think in the in the general community, it's more of an issue of lack of understanding of what's occurring, lack of familiarity with the literature. And, and so when that happens, what doctors do is they default to guidelines put out by medical organizations. And so they'll pick up a document uh, that, will sum, that is supposed to, in a scientific way, putting politics aside, summarize the medical literature to help that doctor make a decision about how to best help that patient. And that clearly has not happened with the Endocrine Society, the uh, American Pediatric Association, and the Psychological Association, Psychological Association as well in this country. They have not presented in any scientific or objective fashion the full spectrum of concern about gender affirmation therapy. Uh, they, they have gone all in for affirmation uh, to great consequence, um, to negative consequence. So, so yes, it's a lack of information. It is a failure of our medical societies to actually present objective. You know, we, we can't get, I'll give you an example here. So, you know, at the main endocrine meetings, um, occasionally we'll have there will be an hour presentation of a point to counterpoint. Uh, for example, uh, of a new diabetes medication. Okay, so you'll have one fellow here and one doctor here. Uh, so two doctors up there, and they, they will talk back and forth over the course of an hour with slides and literature and cost-benefit analyses and minutiae you cannot even imagine. Okay. <laughs> 
and they will pat themselves on the back at how smart they are and 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 what a great conversation this has been okay yeah. and we can't get a point counterpoint on gender affirmation therapy on uh, puberty blockers we can't we can't get a a public uh, balanced or we we the yes we can't get any of that. It's essentially just a one-sided presentation. And so in a room of a thousand endocrinologists, I mean, these are huge lecture halls. You know, these meetings happen once a year. You'll have a gender affirmation clinician lecturing to a thousand or so endocrinologists, telling them, essentially confusing them uh, about sex and gender, Mm -hmm. telling them that, Affirmation is the treatment. No mention of the uh, uh, accommodative or therapeutic models. Do they cast therapy into the? Uh, do they frame it as conversion therapy? Do they go that far? No. Okay, they just no. They just say it. this. This is how this should be treated now. Okay. Now. Yep. So it's like by fiat. Just somebody's Correct. decided this in yes. some weird room. Yeah, and a few years ago when they showed up to our main meetings, uh, you know, we started hearing these lectures. You know, we looked at each other and said, I don't know what this guy's talking about. This, huh. this, is, this makes no scientific sense. But, you know, this was before the adolescent onset gender dysphoria wave. Well, all right, I don't know what he's talking about. He's certainly not making a lot of sense. This does not sound scientific. So we're just going to kind of ignore this for now hmm. because it's not directly impacting me. Uh, but that was a mistake because now it's impacting everybody. It, are you, do you perceive that there's a problem for people to uh, even do a presentation on the stuff that you, you've been sharing and speaking about? Can you, could you get a slot doing the counterpoint? Uh, um, at the endocrine society or at these major societies? No, it's been asked and it's, it's been, and, and there are other kind of academic, right? So I'm a community endocrinologist. I'm a regular, you know, one of 5,000 endocrinologists in the country. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have an academic position that there are academic endocrinologists who would be willing and exceptionally able to tell the truth about the medical literature regarding gender affirmation therapy. Uh, but that's not been done so far, and um, it's a real it's a real problem. So, so, so that's the second. So the first is uh, the doctor don't have the education. The medical societies essentially will only allow for conversation after uh, you agree that puberty blockade, cross sex hormones, and sex reassignment surgery are the treatment for gender dysphoria. That doesn't sound scientific whatsoever. That's right. Scientific. Yeah, and that's why this is very difficult right now. Because we have historically trusted these organizations to provide us with accurate information. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And they're not in this situation. They are not actively generating debate. Um and it's a real shame. And the consequence of that is 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 just complete access to puberty blockade and puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones in the community. 
many times being uh, prescribed by practitioners who really have no no business prescribing hormones at all, let alone in a cross-sex fashion. I've heard uh, I've heard from one person at least that Planned Parenthood is now uh, yeah giving access to hormones. Yep, some of the community clinics and some of these places are staffed by. Uh, um, you know, different names, Physi- physician extenders or, uh, you know, they're nurse practitioners, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, without the expertise training in these fields. Um, so, and then in terms of, so then you asked about, uh, you know, uh, blowback otherwise. Well, you know, I think, yeah, I think there's risk, of course, to standing up and saying that you don't agree with, by standing up and saying the emperor has no clothes, there's no data here. There's, there's, there's no proof this works. There's lots of proof that it's risky and dangerous. There are other treatment modalities. Yeah, there's risk to doing that. Uh, it's a very emotional topic for most people. Um, so, Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it adds another element of stress. And I think most physicians are opting out of that. Mm-hmm. But this has the potential to basically neuter a generation. Well, I think eventually what's going to happen is the, the sheer number of individuals who have been. So when you apply an unscientific process or thought process to reality, Okay, you get bad outcomes. Yeah, and that's what's happening. So, uh, so applying the already controversial uh, Dutch protocol of puberty blockading cross-sex hormones to adolescent onset gender dysphoria, for example, okay, which we really don't understand at all in terms of duration. Uh, uh, it looks mm-hmm. like many of these, predominantly girls, but boys as well, have autism spectrum conditions. Very concrete thinking. Oh, I don't like dresses, so therefore I must be a boy. Yeah. Right? So uh, treating a young girl like that with testosterone, it makes no scientific sense. So so when you apply unscientific principles to the real world, bad things happen. And then eventually those people who have had bad things happen to them start to stand up and say, look, something bad happened to me. Look at the consequences of applying this unscientific treatment protocol to real life. And eventually the weight of the number of people hurt by this will, I believe, force some global awareness and, and hmm. change and reckoning. Mm-hmm. Why? I guess this... You might not have enough data to have a conclusion about this, but I have to ask it anyways. Why are these authoritarian, uh, authoritative uh, institutions? Um, how did they get captured by this way of thinking? Why why are they going in this direction all of a sudden and so strongly? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I could theorize. I don't. I don't know. I don't. So this has been written written about actually, you know, uh, other psychiatric crazes they're called. So yeah. essentially, uh, the populace, led by a, a few physicians, 
comes to conclude that a somatic treatment for psychic distress is a good idea. And um, it, it, it's almost like it has a life of its own once it gets started. And then it basically starts to burn out once everybody realizes it was a horrible mistake. Yeah. And in the meantime, you're left with multitudes of people who have been harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, after at least what I've read, that you know, there doesn't appear to be much reckoning. It's almost like, well, well, we were just trying to, we were just doing the best that we could. Yeah. We were just trying to help. Yeah, but you abandon scientific principles along the way. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, um, from some of the research that you shared with me, this is going to disproportionately affect an already marginalized group, uh, namely the homosexuals or bisexuals are the ones who are going to be, who end up uh, naturally getting through their gender dysphoria. So if, if all these... Uh, let's say lesbian lesbian women and, and gay men are tracked yeah. onto this body modification. Um, right. It, it seems like a very weird form of uh, homophobia, or like, but a, a very aggressive regime of stamping out homophobia by by yeah. modifying the body. Yeah. So you know, Deborah So has written about that. Um, yeah, that that's an underlying theme here is that you know kids with. So gender non-conforming kids, so a girl, for example, who has preferences for masculine uh, behavior or uh, uh, dress, etc., uh, young in life, uh, probability-wise, may be same-sex attracted lesbian later in life. Mm-hmm. So by interrupting pubertal development, you're, you're, you're halting you're halting that individual's development the, the way that it's supposed to go. And uh, yes, that's been written about as well. I mean, in Iran, for example, um, you know, sex reassignment surgery is very popular because homosexuality is illegal. Hmm. So you're not allowed to be same-sex attracted. That's It's actually punishable, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes by death. And so... Uh, well, we'll just fix that, quote-unquote, with cross-sex hormones and either masculinizing or feminizing surgery. And the reason I use that term is because you can't reassign sex, right? It's impossible. Uh, no one is born in the wrong body. Um, you know, uh, so it's a, it is essentially a cosmetic intervention mm-hmm. for some root psychic distress, some psychological distress. Yeah, yeah. Or sociological, uh, I guess, punishment or reassignment in the case of of Iran. Yeah, yeah. Just to go back a little bit, when you were talking about um, puberty blockers, it Mm -hmm. just made me think that it seems like people confuse it like you're just holding a kid back in school and you're giving them extra time to development and to develop. But it's yeah. the, actually the opposite of doing that. You're you're freezing them in time, on yes. not just physically, but but it, well, I guess the the body is one whole thing. So you're not yes. just allowing the brain to proceed while the body Correct. waits. Like the whole thing is stopped. That's exactly right, and that's one of the major concerns that's been raised in the literature. Uh, 
by those, there was a study done, they surveyed clinicians working in gender clinics using puberty blockers. And these were the concerns that they raised. So even the folks in them doing this are concerned mm-hmm. that this is occurring. Uh, no, that's absolutely right. And again, back to Carl Hennigan, right? These, these drugs are being used. Puberty blockers are being used. The editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, right? Someone who should be taken seriously. These drugs are being used in the setting of profound scientific ignorance. And so if you look at his editorial and then go look at the literature, if someone is actually wants to know the truth about this, uh, there's no other conclusion to be drawn. Wow. Wow. So what do you think needs to happen then? Um, the, the professionals need to be better educated. Um, can, should the, I guess the populace needs to be better educated too about the dangers of this and yep. maybe some, some pushback against the, I, I don't mean this totally negatively, but the trans lobby or whoever it is that's really pushing this on a societal level. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, the truth has to be told about what's occurring and on all of those levels at every level. Um, and, you know, thankfully, the Royal, Coll- Royal College of General Practitioners in the UK just, I think it was last week, uh, earlier, yeah, last week uh, or two weeks ago, uh, basically told the truth and said, okay, you know, gender and sex are not the same thing. Um, and there's no, there's, there's no evidence that affirmation therapy works. And so we're essentially running an experiment outside of experimental protocols. So we're running a giant experiment, uh, but th- and that's not how medicine is supposed to work. You're supposed to do the experiments first, show that the treatment works, especially when you're talking about infertility and sexual dysfunction long-term and a fourfold, a, you know, a four times increased risk of heart disease and a two to three times increased rate of development of blood clots and, and strokes and the data we have now shows a 20-fold increased risk of suicide long-term. So if we're going to go down that treatment protocol, there better be very good evidence that it works. Um, And that evidence does not exist. And it runs contrary, This, like I said, this entire approach runs contrary to how we practice medicine in every other area. If the brain and the body are in conflict... We work on the brain. We don't work on the body. Mm-hmm. And, and so why it's really... is that? Because the brain can change or because yeah. messing with the body is more fatal than messing with the brain? Like, what's the reason Because we have to agree that there is some fundamental reality that we exist and operate in and that we can identify that reality with our senses and measurements and agree upon that reality that XX and XY cells are different and they respond differently to hormones. Um, And so once we agree upon that reality, if someone is at odds with that reality, we need to help them back to reality, not keep them away from reality. Now, how do you do that on a social level? How do you, how do you re re steer a society back to reality? Just let uh, it crash against the rocks and expend a bunch of lives until they, stand up 
that seems to be what's happening with these crises over and over again. So if you look at the opiate crisis, right? I mean, uh, oh, here, okay, here's a non-addictive opiate. Oh, really? No, it, it's not. And and how many people had to suffer before that non-reality, right? So you take you take a bad idea, put it into reality, and you get a bad outcome. And so that's that's what's happening, and I and I think uh, unfortunately uh, it takes it takes significant suffering for society to wake up to that reality. Hmm. Hmm. That that's not um, an optimistic outlook, but I, I, it seems realistic, though. Yeah, no, I'm I I don't th- I have some optimism more recently because of the Royal College of General okay. Practitioners. But they the really, World Health Organization is going the other route, from what I've yeah, heard. Yes. So, but at least now there's some pushback where, on an individual basis, individuals who are caught up in this can uh, have a chance now of making a decision, at least based on some more factual based information. Mm-hmm. Uh, truly, or at least more informed consent. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what about your role? Do you, you speak about this on Twitter and your your Twitter presence is really appreciated. And at least in for me and then other people, because you're, you're bringing up facts and, and you're really yeah. standing with a lot of people who are bringing up facts. Um, do you have any plans to uh, or are there other people in your profession that are you think will converge on doing what you're doing? Or is there any uh, movement towards like a collective of endocrinologist so i i think privately yes bravely oh okay so it's yeah Uh, publicly i don't i don't see that yet but i think eventually that will happen like i said eventually the the consequences of the application of this bad idea will be so evident that any except the extreme ideologues will be forced to accept what's happened and do you get referrals from people with uh, gender dysphoria um, a few, so, so you brought this up initially, uh, most kids now who have gender dysphoria, they want puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And so because I don't do that, they're not going to come oh, my okay. way. Okay. So they're, these kids are presenting to the primary care offices and then the primary care docs are confused as to what to do. How do I, how do I handle this situation? Do I send them for counseling? Do I send them to somebody who's going to put them on puberty blockers. Uh, my experience up to this date, right, has been adults with autogonophilia. That was the, that was the uh, predominant presentation for um, adult endocrinologists. And then this new adolescent wave, uh, most of them are being funneled to so-called gender clinics. Hmm. So... Um, are these gender clinics, uh, they're just sprouting up, I guess, to meet the demand? And are they, what is a gender clinic? What is it based on? Uh, it seems yeah. like that's a kind of a gender studies thing. It's like it's taking some science and then it's framing it in an ideological. So uh, so I think in 2010, there were eight designated gender clinics in this country. And now there are more than 50. Okay. And uh, it's, it's what you said, uh, essentially meeting this demand for individuals who 
wish to be treated with cross-sex hormones. And so that's what they're offering. They're offering um, affirmation. There's no oversight, so I don't know exactly the clinical models that are being used in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, what we're hearing is that more so it's informed consent. So you sit down with a brochure, um, here's what testosterone is going to do to you in a, in the ways that you think will help you. And there's some things, other things that might happen. It's kind of mentioned in there. Uh, but it's really not a, a true informed consent process. And I think there's there's a lot more to be said coming about that as well. How do you consent a 14-year-old to lifelong infertility? How do you consent a stressed 17-year-old to permanent voice changes, increased risk of heart disease, um, and all the other physical changes that, that can occur that can be irreversible from um, testosterone? So it's a real problem. I mean, again, under normal circumstances, so we've got like two different ways that medicine is being practiced now. So gynecologists will not perform elective hysterectomies on women under the age of 25 unless there's some emergent reason. And the reason is because they understand that the human brain is not fully mature until at least early 20s, maybe mid-20s, and if you've got somebody with an autism spectrum condition hmm. or, or something else that may have caused delay of um, development, they may not be mature till late 20s to make a decision about permanent infertility. So that's how regular medicine works. And then we have unscientific medicine now where a 14-year-old can elect, apparently uh, is competent enough to make a decision about lifelong infertility. It, mm -hmm. The two can't exist in the same space. Hmm. So the one has to go and move into a little special clinic where they perform, you know, half off mastectomies on Valentine's day and stuff like that. Yeah. You, you saw those, those advertisements for yeah. double mastectomies, right? So it's really, um, it's really unbelievable. I guess that's the only way to describe it. It's, uh, it's horrific. Um, and and it's thoroughly odd, um, unless you trace it back to some sort of ideological precedent that was set up. I, I think in the universities with uh, gender theory or some some sort of something like that introduced this idea, and the idea took weight and took hold. Uh, or maybe so, it's so I haven't I haven't dug into much into the origins of this. Um, approach which is a which has essentially so counseling as a treatment for gender dysphoria was abandoned back you could say essentially abandoned i think it was in the 50s and 60s by three physicians who are considered the founders of uh transgender treatment um, a guy named i think john money or money i don't know how to say his last name harry benjamin and uh, Kinsey. And if you read about uh, these guys, um, it's it's not a it's not a pleasant read. Um, in terms of the types of experiments they were doing on people, uh, and but really this this concept of we're going to treat the body, not the mind, got started then. Okay. And. Um, 
because it was not affecting many people, you know, like I said, this was only one out of maybe 20 to 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. Nobody was really paying much attention. And, and that's why this was able to go on for many years. And like I said, up until 2010, there were only eight gender clinics in the entire country. Because it was only after, so, so if you allow people to go through puberty who have gender dysphoria, the majority result. And so you would only be left with a small percentage who then would have persistent gender dysphoria, who would then go on to cross-sex hormones and surgery. And you had Ray Blanchard on. He described how cautious they were, right? Live as the opposite sex, then do the cross-sex hormones, then do the irreversible surgery. But all of this is occurring in young adulthood. Now, you can even make a case based on the recent studies of heart disease, blood clot, and long-term suicidality that even that approach should be seriously reconsidered. But that approach, so that was one out of 40,000 people in the general population. So so this unscientificness has been present for a long time. It okay. just didn't affect many people. But with the onset of the puberty blockade and this now adolescent onset gender dysphoria, we're in a completely different world. Hmm. Hmm. And again, how do you how do you steer the ship back? But I, I guess you yeah. just need to let it happen or, or speak up as you're doing right now and as other people are doing right now. Yeah, yeah. You just basically lay out the facts. Mm-hmm. And say, look, here's what's happening. Here's what the data shows. If you're going to apply the scientific process to this aspect of medicine, we need to apply it to this aspect as well. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and then you make your case. And from personal experience, you know, I've talked to, I don't know, uh, two dozen physicians at this point, kind of in a real sense, not just a passing conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay, sat down with them, explained the literature. Now, don't take my word for it. Go research it yourself. I've provided you the references. Go do your job. Go mm-hmm. figure out how best to treat these people. And when they do that, it's obvious to them that back to Carl Hennigan his his statement is absolutely correct it's unproven and unsafe hmm. and and there's really no other conclusion to be drawn from the literature if you take an objective look at it and so that's I think ultimately where this has to go and if we can break through in the main medical meetings I mean it would just take one simple presentation from someone critical of affirmation therapy to dramatically shift practice hmm. patterns. Hmm. So you need a your reality blocker regimen. Uh... Yeah, we need more reality, <laughs> which is always the case. How um, I we need to start wrapping up because I have to take off. But I would like to know if you want to uh, tell us uh, how did you get into this field of medicine? Uh, how did you end up doing this work? So. Um, so I'm a general endocrinologist uh, in the community. Uh, so the way that this works is uh, uh, you go through medical school and then you pick a specialty. Okay, do I want to be a surgeon or do I, do I want to be a cutter or a talker, essentially, hmm. is really kind of the initial decision that you have to make. And uh, I saw the, the lifestyle of the surgeons was just brutal. I mean, they were doing incredible work um, and saving lives, but... Uh, Immediately, in the immediate sense, you know, the the talkers, the medicine doctors kind of 
save lives over the long period of time. But um, yeah. so that was the first decision making point is is medicine or surgery. So I chose medicine and then uh, happened to uh, run into a, a great endocrinologist uh, where I was training and um, um, went through two years of endocrinology. So basically what happens is we pass internal medicine boards and then we do two years of additional training and then we have to pass endocrine boards. Mm-hmm. And then at that point we are considered and expected to be and appropriately so experts in all things hormonal regardless of the frequency of presentation in the population Hmm. so diabetes is much more prevalent than acromegaly for example so it might be acromegaly twice a year right excesses of growth hormone or uh, but we're expected and and rightly so to be experts in all areas of uh, hormonal um, excesses or deficiency and uh, gender dysphoria included, although I would argue it is not, that is not a condition of hormonal excess or deficiency. This is a, 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 uh, uh, psychosocial. Yeah. This is not an endocrine problem, but because the, I would say psychiatry and psychology as a whole, there are obvious exceptions and you've interviewed exceptions have Hmm. abandoned yeah, they've essentially kind of jumped ship on this condition. Hmm. And uh, and so now the endocrinologists have to step up and say, well, wait a second. You know, it's quite easy for a psychologist or a psychiatrist to call the endocrinologist and say, oh, you got to give this uh, this girl testosterone. Well, they're not going to be the ones called to the bedside two or three years later or four years later or five years later when that individual has had an MI and they're in the intensive care unit, you know, with their family around them. Hmm. So the prescribers of these drugs have a responsibility to um, uh, understand the consequences of prescribing and to make sure that there's a clear indication. And, and there is not one in this situation. Okay. okay. Um, do you th- do you think that given enough research, uh, there might be? Are there some exceptions to to this then? Because I've met some pretty uh, amazing people who end up. Uh, transitioning their sex, um, mm-hmm. but that comes with a risk. Yeah, uh, and and the ones that I've spoken to really uh, lay that out and stress yeah. the the yeah. cost it's benefit. Risky. Yeah, um, that's a conversation that has to be had. Yeah, uh, and and it has to be had based on. Well, I mean, it can be had on multiple levels, but from my standpoint, it's it's a scientific discussion and then mm-hmm. uh, a philosophical one. Um, perhaps, uh, but we have to look at the science. And then if we're going to say that, okay, the science says it's not safe on, on whole, right? So we're looking at, um, you know, increased risks here, percentage wise, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. If, if we're going to abandon, abandon the approach that we use in every other process, well, we better have a lot of conversation about why and how that's going to occur. Uh, and that's how, that's how those things need to be figured out Mm -hmm. scientifically. I mean, the data long-term is just abysmal. Hmm. I mean, doctors immediately stopped prescribing hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women. When a study came out showing, um, it was about a, it was like a 15 to 20% increased risk of breast cancer and heart disease. 
which is significant. Which yes, so so one in five, one in six. Right, but we're we're talking now about a three hundred percent increased risk of heart disease from testosterone. So because so they're taking it so long. Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at a fifteen percent risk, and that immediately caused almost an immediate cessation of prescriptions for postmenopausal women. Uh, uh, and there have been some modifications of that. It looks like it was that particular formulation, et cetera, mm-hmm. versus now a 300% increased risk of taking testosterone. So that, that's why I'm saying that we're in, a, we're, in a, we're in serious disconnect, and the only way this is going to be resolved is conversation, and that's being suppressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dang, that... This is a really dire episode. Thank you for sharing your, yeah. your expertise. How complex is, is endocrinology? Um, just as a, a, comparatively, I don't even know if this makes sense as a question. I'm just trying to figure out like how complex is the system that you're dealing with? So, um, well, for those of us who are in it, it's, it's not that complex, but for those who are not in it, it is, it is full of complexity. Mm-hmm. And um, it takes a while to understand the subtleties of hormonal feedback and okay. um, how to manipulate those systems to help people achieve better health. So, and yeah, it's, it's a fairly complex um, subspecialty. Have you studied this in relationship to uh, evolutionary biology or how it, how it kind of propped up itself, how it grew over time, like just uh, in biology? It's- uh, not specifically. Okay. Are there uh, are there studies on like on that, just showing how the mammal constructed itself over time into this complex, weird uh, form of juices all interacting yeah. with each other? Yeah. Well, I can give you one example. So, so metabolically, um, you know, if you burn sugar on the stovetop, it turns into like a sticky material. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Right. yeah. Carbon, you know what? Carbon. You know, yeah, you know what creosote is? Like if someone has a wood stove, they're they're they have to clean the pipe of the stove out periodically or else the, the byproducts of any carbon based fuel being burned results in this sticky material and it builds up on oh. stuff. And and so glucose, you know, sugar is essentially a carbon based fuel for us. Okay, we're flex fuel, we inhale oxygen, um, and then Combine that with three different sources of fuel. So we've got fats, which burn pretty clean, proteins, which burn dirty, which is why we've got kidneys. Hmm. Okay, so the the kidneys uh, uh, clean out the byproducts of uh, protein metabolism, the urea, the nitrogen, okay. and then glucose. Glucose is its backbone is carbon, and so when it burns, when you combine glucose with oxygen internally, okay, which is a metabolic process, right? We're essentially a combustion engine. To generate heat, okay, uh, that process results in the formation of that sticky stuff internally as well. And so if you have too much glucose, so glucose is a very potent energy source, and it would be, from an evolutionary standpoint, of great advantage to be able to consume carbohydrate, but as a consequence of its metabolism, not die. Okay, so if your blood sugar is too high and you're developing too much of that sticky stuff buildup, that sticky yeah. stuff 
clog up small blood vessels, and that's what causes the damage of diabetes. So the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves have the smallest blood vessels. They get clogged with the byproducts of glucose metabolism if the sugar is too high in the bloodstream. So the body developed a way so that we can consume carbohydrate but immediately store it as an energy source that we can burn later. And so we developed the capacity to make insulin, which takes glucose out of the blood, stores it as fat. And when fat burns, it's pretty clean. I mean, think about a candle when it burns down. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a little byproduct, but it's a pretty clean burn. Mm -hmm. And so we essentially evolved the ability to consume a high energy source that is toxic. Carbohydrates are toxic, but then store that as with the use of insulin as a non-toxic fuel. And what, now, what produces the insulin? The pancreas. Okay. Yep. And and so diabetes is uh, when you're treating diabetes, you're treating the pancreas. And why does uh, why does diabetes generally occur? What is the so so you got two types of diabetes. So um, so type one diabetes is pancreatic failure. So in terms of insulin production, so digestively you're okay, but the pan the auto the immune system attacks the pancreas, and the pancreas's ability to make insulin uh, goes away. Insulin levels go down, and so we have to replace that with injectable insulin. Type 2 diabetes results from excess body weight. It results from essentially an excess of calories, so overconsumption of food versus uh, burning of that energy of that food, uh, resulting in obesity. Um, the pancreas tries really hard to maintain normal blood sugars because glucose is toxic, but eventually it burns out, and that's what leads to type 2 diabetes. So as an endocrinologist, essentially got two tasks with type 2 diabetes. The first is to normalize blood sugar using diet exercise and medication and sometimes insulin. The second task as well is to help the patient understand what led to the obesity, what chronic stressor yeah. caused the overeating that led to the obesity that then led to the type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So basically, okay, let's use these medications to help you with your blood sugar, but let's also get to the root of the stress. Huh. Why are you why are you overeating? What, you know, the, that's another endocrine system that is very interesting. So if someone is chronically stressed, their stress hormone levels, cortisol and adrenaline go up, uh, cortisol and adrenaline deplete dopamine levels centrally in the brain. So you're not supposed to feel well when you're stressed. Yeah. Right. Sugar increases dopamine. Oh uh, yeah. Temporarily. And it does uh -huh. so in a fashion where the more you get, the more you want. Yeah those dopamine receptors downregulate. It's just a classic addiction feedback cycle. So, mm -hmm. so that's the second thing that endocrinology should be helping patients with is understand, okay, you're chronically stressed. What is the reason for that? Because we need to fix that so that you don't continue overeating. Yeah. So you're doing the accommodative technique, which is therapy and, and, uh, I guess, uh, medicalization. I guess you could say that. So it's essentially treating the end result of the condition, but also trying to stop it from getting worse by most of the time. The reason people are chronically stressed is they are exceptionally poor at standing up for themselves. Hmm. Hmm. And, and many who have severe obesity as well, they have a history of trauma as, as young people. Uh, this has been studied and known as well. And so, 
there's there are certain characteristic stress patterns. I mean, right? You've heard that term, only the good die young. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so doctors know we know that it's usually the really nice people who get sick. They're susceptible. They are too nice. They're in a chronic state of stress. Huh. And their cortisol levels, this is my, again, this is my theory. So, so taking this from practice to, uh, from, uh, this is my theory, at least just observations of different types of personalities that tend to get sick. Um, Yeah. you know, I mean, when I went through my rotation, uh, you know, oncology rotation, you know, the first thing that senior resident said to me as he said you know you're going to notice that it's nice people who get cancer it's the nicest people who get cancer and he was right because they're like bearing the weight of the world or something essentially they're they're in a constant emotional state of appeasement Hmm. this is my theory on this okay Okay. and 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 many of us now we have uh, counselors embedded in our clinics Okay. Because we know there is a high, there's a high rate of um, depression and anxiety, which are essentially result from chronic excesses of stress hormone and really not being able to deal with uh, being susceptible to the stresses of life. I'll put it that way. Well, not setting boundaries in a sense. Correct. No boundaries, putting everybody else first, hmm. really having a hard time saying no. Yeah. And as a consequence, uh, their fight or flight system um, is cranking out lots of cortisol. Hmm. Again, this is this is theoretical. This is, yeah, this, you're not just telling my... everybody to buck up. <laughs> Learn how to stand up for yourself and yeah. uh, set huh. boundaries with people. Right? You don't have to be a jerk. Just yeah. Just uh, expect the same level of respect that you give everybody else because mm-hmm. these these folks will they'll put themselves dead last everybody else is first mm-hmm. uh, and this starts at a very young age so th- these are the these are the sorts of patterns of stress that we see over and over again yeah and uh, and then when we can show people like look you're gonna feel better when you set some boundaries you don't feel like you're gonna be at the will of everybody else um, and you're going to notice that you're less hungry for uh, foods you don't need. This sounds pretty amazing because, uh, you know, the, I guess the tired criticism of Western medicine is that it just treats everybody as an object. But it seems like your discipline, at least, is moving towards a more holistic understanding of the human being and trying to really service them on, on all levels. Um, I think I am. Um, and there are others who are starting to think this way as well. Oh, so okay. It's, okay. it's like, okay, yeah, stress plays a role in probably the onset of illness through disruptions of immune system function mm-hmm. and makes it worse once you have an illness. And so, you know, stress management absolutely has to be part of any treatment protocol, in my opinion. Hmm. It's just so fascinating to me, just as a poet, to think that somebody who has a hard time setting boundaries their immune system has a hard time regulating their actual boundaries. It's, so, so the, that's an interesting way to, to look at it. I mean, the, the link there, the biochemical link is through cortisol. So cortisol, cortisol is, a, is a very potent, um, it's a steroid. It's essentially internal prednisone. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and it's released when we're under stress. It's kind of toxic. In high yes, it, it, it basically the purpose of cortisol is one of the purposes is to raise your blood sugar to feed your muscles so you can fight or flight. Okay. Okay. So if someone is in a chronic state, excuse me, chronic state of fight or flight, for whatever reason, night shift work, uh, abusive relationship, past trauma they haven't dealt with, uh, just generally being taken advantage of everywhere they go uh, because they don't know how to stand up for themselves. Um, there's some studies showing that, uh, that that approach to life, uh, your limbic system essentially stratifies you in a hierarchy, in a social hierarchy, so that if you are not standing up to people, your fight or flight system is, is waiting for this person to come and take your stuff. Yeah. Okay. Just like a monkey troop or a, a you know a, a chicken coop essentially. So it's a it's an animal based hierarchical system. Yeah. Where if you're not holding your ground, your fight or flight system gets you ready to be taken advantage of at any point in time. Your resources, your food, your mates, the whole thing. Right. Going back to an evolutionary biology standpoint. And so, uh, and that creates a constant state of anxiety. Because the cortisol depletes dopamine levels, and in addition, cortisol inhibits normal immune system function. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so someone who's chronically stressed is going to be getting sick more often, mm-hmm. uh, and we see that as well. I mean, you can induce that with overexercise. It's simple. So, marathon runners, if they're if they're running more than ninety minutes uh, per session, and there's a certain threshold. They all know when they get closer to training, their susceptibility to viral infections goes up. Okay. Because with the overexercise, they put themselves into a chronic state of stress, excess cortisol inhibition of immune system. Mm-hmm. So the cortisol knocks down immune system function, knocks down dopamine. So then we will turn to whatever source of dopamine we turn to, and it can be socially acceptable or socially unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. To temporarily relieve that feeling of anxiety caused by that dopamine depletion okay. and serotonin depletion. And then at the same time, our immune system is dysfunctional. And I'm of the thought that some people will uh, be more susceptible to bacterial and viral infections. Others um, will be more susceptible to autoimmune disease. And others, you know, our immune system is the main uh, defense against malignancy. Right, so if a cell develops that doesn't look like it should, our immune system should immediately kill that, and it appears yeah. that all of us develop cancers continuously through our lifetime, yeah. and then our immune system just kills them. Yeah. But if your immune system is chronically depleted from excesses of stress hormone, you're more likely to get cancer in theory. Again, that hasn't been directly proven, but it's really interesting yeah. that the main, and I'll, I'll shut up here in a minute, the main... Um, <laughs> Uh, treatments now being developed for malignancies are immune system based. You essentially hypercharge the immune system so that it will circulate these white blood cells, these killer T cells will circulate, identify abnormal cancer cells and kill them anywhere in the body. Hmm. So you you empower the internal editor rather than like shooting laser beams into the person to kill it. Exactly. Huh. That sounds smart, even if it might be tricky to, to do correctly. I mean, if you over, if you let, so the immune system is like a lion, a tiger in a cage. Mm-hmm. So if 
if it, if it overactivates, it can cause a significant problem. And, and like you were saying, it, it can attack the pancreas. It can single yes. out organs yep. to, to go after. Correct. Fascinating. Yes. It's what, you could talk forever. This is great. And I, I'm surprised that you don't go around and give talks at these conferences and stuff. You're so so I, you know, I do locally. Um, I, you know, what I desire most is a quiet life in the country, Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. And so I, I haven't made it a point to, uh, put myself out there. So I will okay. do local talks and everything I just shared with you, I will share with, uh, patients if, if mm -hmm. they're under stress and say, look, you know, we've got to get you, got to give you some skills to deal with that chronic stress, um, yeah in certain ways uh so yeah well i can't i probably can't get you on bill maher but um i could boost your profile just a little bit all right sounds good thanks so much william for for your time this has been an excellent talk i think this is really uh important a part of the series and i hope that this gets circulated so that uh scientists and people who are needing this information can can hear it and maybe start spark more conversation along these lines yeah i hope so yeah, appreciate that. Yeah. Well, happy insulin. Uh, I don't know. How do endocrinologists say goodbye? Do you guys have a special no. uh, hormone handshake or anything? Like no. That? I, if there is, uh, no one has showed me yet. Okay. Yeah, right, man. Well, have a good day. Okay. Thanks, Benjamin.